Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. I was very suicidal and my dad knew that. And he told me that actually, if you drink all these medicines, you're going to die. He was very, very ashamed of what I became. And he couldn't take it that I went to the police and I gave a statement against my uncle. So they told me, if you eat all of them and you're going to die. They wanted you to kill yourself. Yeah. So, yeah. So Fucking all the other hell. time, the medicines are like, would be locked away. But they were there in the, in the, in the dining room. And then he attacked me. In this episode, we peer behind the curtain of the life of ex-Muslim Ray, founder of the counter-extremism non-profit, the Committee to Protect Muslims and Ex-Muslims. Disclaimer, this is by no means an attack on Islam, just as the episode with Emily Green, the Hasidic Jew, was not an attack on Judaism. Both episodes are simply a case of giving a platform to women who were suppressed, harassed, and threatened by their families and the extreme sides of their culture. Before I continue about Ray, thanks so much for your continued support and all the messages. I love it. So do get in touch on Twitter or wherever. In just six weeks, we've gone from 50 listeners a week to a couple of thousand and growing fast. All I ask of you is that you go to the place you download this and see if you can review it and give it some love. It helps with all the charts and analytics and stuff. Ray and I have become online pen pals for a while. Now a prominent ex-Muslim speaker on the perils of extremism, Ray, who moved to the UK from Bangladesh, is still stalked by her family and wider members of Islamist extremist groups who believe in the blasphemy law. She is also attacked online by both the far left and the far right, so not an enviable position to be in. Her family abused her throughout childhood, and when she was 26, her father urged her to drink two bottles of unknown medicine, suggesting if she drink them, she'll die. He then violently assaulted her, prompting her to finally leave her family for the UK. She's been in constant communication with the police, and I reached her at her current safe house. You were the only podcast I've agreed to do, so there were a couple of requests, and I, could, um, I was very worried about my own personal okay. safety. No one's allowed to know where you are right now, is that right? Even though I don't tell anyone where I live, I, I still have the problem of getting stalked by mm. people from the community that I've left. Do you have to make a whole new group of friends? I have to sometimes, yes. So I have to be quite careful. And then if I do have a security concern, then I have to let everyone know for their own safety. Wow. That uh, actually um, I'm probably gonna, going to get, get stalked. So do you have to tell the new friends every time what could happen? But if I do feel like actually there is a danger, then I would have to tell them, actually, I'm getting, getting stalked or I'm not feeling very safe. Hmm. Um, 
So yes, I have. To, I sometimes have to tell them, but this it's not all true. the time. I I don't want to panic people. Like it's, it's it's hard to make new friends anyway. When you are in a new community, you don't want to scare people. Saying actually, oh, I'm someone. I had a public profile, and now I get stopped by yeah. uh, people who threaten to kidnap me. I wonder if you might be able to start at the beginning. Uh, you know, your childhood, where you grew up, and everything. Um, so I was born in Bangladesh, and then I came to the UK basically for my master's studies. Okay. Between that time, uh, I think the situation became very difficult. I was born into a Muslim family. And a lot of the things that I experienced was felt like it was actually very normal to feel, um, sorry, very difficult. That's okay. Not a good childhood. Uh, so it was very difficult um, growing up in the family. And um, there was a lot of religious pressure and I wasn't very, very um, religious. Like in, from 13, from the age of 13, I became an agnostic. I started questioning the faith. But as long as you hit puberty you ha- and you're a daughter, I think the honor of the family falls on you and not on the men. My uncles were very violent. My mom was very violent. My dad would be told by my mom to assault me. So it wasn't very easy. Um, and it was all given to me like, actually, this is normal, that you should actually accept, accept your faith and just go on with it. And I feel like, actually, maybe I should do that. But it became very difficult to cope especially when you also have like you have a brother you see him being treated differently than 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 you are treated Hmm. i've seen my aunts being physically assaulted they didn't have any financial independence they didn't have a job and they were stuck in this really miserable job and i was like no actually i want to complete my education i want to do i want to get a job um and then uh you know if my because my parents used to be very forceful in terms of getting me married and i was like actually if you let me do my masters i'm going to get married i'm going to listen to listen to you were there arguments then at the time it sounds like you were resisting a little bit i i was resisted a lot i mean i i think i i, I became more of a i've been rebellious my, my entire life but Every time I would be rebellious, my parents would beat me up. And that would happen until the age I was 24. Um, and I was like, it was, it was only when I came to the UK and I knew actually I have support. I'm like, no, actually, you can't do this to me anymore because I'm an adult woman. Yeah. And yeah, but I'm ha- all right now. Okay. <laughs> I had a, a, a conversation recently for the podcast with a, a woman who left the Hasidic Jewish community. And there are yeah. a lot of parallels with what you're saying and what she experienced. Yeah. I think the the marriage part, the arranged marriage was sort of the last line for her, although she did end up having to get married and having mm-hmm. children um, before she was able to leave. Um, and also the sort of patriarchy aspects. Uh, it just seems that the men are totally in charge of everything, yeah. and whether it's Hasidic Jews or the, yeah. the extreme Muslim um, family. Uh, what kind of things were happening day to day that would be surprising for a Western audience? You are policed from the very morning you wake up. So you are policed into what you, what I'm eating. I had a different experience because I mean I wanted to be independent, and then my mom, when I came back from the UK to to Bangladesh for for a couple of times, they wouldn't let me eat any food because I was still dependent on them, and because they feel like I dishonored them. So it was like the police what you're eating, the police what you're wearing, and um, it was more like actually you don't have any world beyond these five people controlling your whole life. I had used to have my cell phone and my laptop taken away by my dad every three to six months to see who I'm talking to. Uh, he would try and get my password to check my emails. And um, I, 
wouldn't be allowed to go anywhere without a male driver or without my dad. So I, I, I didn't know what road uh, started from my house uh, yeah. because I was never allowed to go out on my own properly. What would friends or distant family in the neighborhood have thought about your parents beating you? It was only my own family knew it. And I think it was it was treated as normal. Uh, as long as they beat me and I'm alive, that's, that's fine with me. And you wouldn't talk about these things outside because it's more like a hush-hush thing. So things like you have you have pedophilia within the within the community, you have domestic abuse in the community. It it happens within the family. And yeah. sometimes news gets away when someone gets murdered and then you get it on the newspaper. But between that, there isn't any conversation between in your neighbor. Who are you going to call? I, I mean my next door neighbor had this very Islamic family who used to knock on my door to ask my dad to go to the mosque. Um, my friends, I had classmates who would send me unsolicited emails saying, did you pray today? And I was like, it's not, none of your business whether I'm praying or not. It, you should, you're not even supposed to ask me. But You opened an email and it's just your friend saying, have you prayed today? Like passive yeah. aggressive? Yeah, it was, it was just placing exactly what I do. And then I would, you know, you would receive chain emails asking people to forward you, like, you know, chain, chain, chain posts. And people would ask you to actually, why don't you uh, post this um, Islamic um, this, this, we call it Shahada on your Facebook, you're going to get, um, I mean, get it, make it go viral. And I would never do that. And they were like, why, why didn't you, uh, re repost that thing? Hmm. Like this, this, why didn't you share this Facebook post that I shared? Yeah. And it would just kind of escape. Like, you know, they eventually find out that you were not like them. Wow. What happened when you moved to England then? Was it a surprise how it was? Was everything different or did you have the same sort of problems? Um, I had more and more problems. I came to the UK with a student visa. Uh, but I think my parents, they were became very insecure that actually in a very new culture, I would become even more westernized. I was not allowed to wear jeans or sleeveless you know, dresses, um, even as an adult woman, because my parents would see them as um, westernized or un-Islamic. Yeah. Uh, the day I landed on the UK in 2012, I, had, I was surrounded by three men. Um, I wasn't allowed to go anywhere. I was, I was, I had my dad, my uncle, and my uh, my dad's friend, best friend, checking me everywhere I went, from Tesco to dropping me to my to my campus hostel. I wasn't even, even allowed to have an off-campus accommodation, which would have been cheaper because my parents thought that actually I might be, um, I might make male friends. I might live in a house where people live more rest in life and that would be an influence on me. When people saw you flanked by these uh, cousins, Three men. do you think they just saw they were, they thought they were friends of yours? They thought that you were happy to be accompanied by these people. They wouldn't know that you're being sort of held hostage. No, no, it looked, it looks absolutely normal. I mean, they would look like they're part of my family. And I was like, also, I don't, know anyone and I just it was like okay I have three three men hmm. surrounding me and I was like okay this is this is how it goes but then after my dad left uh, my he paid my uncle um, yeah. to keep an eye on me so I was not wow. even allowed to get my own cell phone I was given an iPhone by my uncle I don't know how he has the supply of iPhones yeah and he used to check on the auto he used to check which numbers I contacted um, and then when he would, I would go to his place, he was like, okay, why did you contact this number? And he would call me every two hours to see where I am, what I'm up to. My mom and dad would call me every two hours and I just couldn't cope with it. Like, it's like people call, call you every two hours. It's like you take a phone every one hour because there is a gap. This is like a prisoner. Yeah, I, I couldn't cope with it. And then I'm in, a new, I'm in a new country. I'm in a new culture. I don't know anyone. And I was like, actually, you're 24, you want to make friends. 
and also you are here I when I had to do good in my 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 studies and I I couldn't focus because of the pressure I had yeah. uh before my exam uh I still remember I had I had a math exam I was I was struggling with this um this this Coulomb Tucker uh, equations that I wasn't I couldn't understand and I spent like weeks and days trying to get around exactly what it is how do I solve it what is that and um it's a it's an it's an economic um it's an it's a calculus concept mm. um and then you have this equation and you try to apply economic theory to it I still don't understand it properly yeah. And I spent weeks and nights in the library studying, t- trying to make sense ex- exactly. I need to understand this because I'm not going to pass my exam. And just right the, the night before my exam, my mom called me. She wasn't care. She didn't ask me how I'm doing, what I'm eating, did I have proper sleep? And she was like, "Actually, are you sleeping with someone? Are you sleeping? Are, did you meet any man? Are you sleeping with someone? Uh, because of your education, uh, and my neighbor thinks you were too westernized. You were you were bringing dishonor to the family." Uh, you are failing us. What exactly you are up to? And I just felt like, I mean, these people, uh, what have I done that is something that they can pick on later for the rest of their life? I knew that actually, if I don't get a proper job on back of a good academic results, what is going to happen to me? Yeah. And my parents were at least the least bothered about these things. They just want to exactly just get a degree, get a piece of paper that we can use when we marry you off. And then we don't care about anything else. Yeah. Did you did you do well? No, I didn't do well. I failed. Yeah. On my first math exam. <laughs> Later on I did well. I graduated. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. I mean it's, it sounds Thank like you. you you graduated under the most strenuous possible circumstances. So I th- I think that in itself is a huge achievement. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let me ask you, were your your family, I'm just curious, were they quite wealthy for, for Bangladesh to be sending people back and forward to England? They were quite, so, so between the 90s and the late uh, 2010, so my parents were more of a middle class, middle income family, but over time, they became very well off, very well connected. The problem was that they were connecting with political people who have Islamic um, inclinations. So my mom worked for this war criminal, um, Nizami. Who, right. who was um, tried in the international tribunal, and then he was he he got the capital punishment. And my mom was this very massive loyalist, and she doesn't look like she she wears a hijab and she was working. She doesn't look like you know, you wouldn't identify her as an Islamist, but she would hold this really insidious views about anyone she she doesn't like, particularly people like I used to have friends from. My best friend was a Hindu, and she wouldn't be allowed in the in in the house. So it was wow. just. From the psychological, it was, it was, it was, uh, it, so that's how it was like, um, they, 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 she, my mom would pray, would recite the Quran, but then she wouldn't wear the hijab. She would be very modestly dressed. Hmm. But then again, it was her political affiliations that was questionable. I wasn't asked to wear the hijab. Okay. Eventually, would you have had to do that or, or not? Eventually, over time, they would have expected me to do that. But um, my mom doesn't wear the hijab, my aunt. But then they, again, they think that they can compensate certain strict religious practices by just being a bit more controlling on the young and vulnerable in the family. Or maybe if you don't wear the hijab, maybe pray a little bit more, recite the Quran a little bit more. Or, and also, uh, you can't make friends with, with, with Hindus and Jews. And you have people from the higher upper class people from Bangladesh or from Pakistan that they do want to invest in the West. They want to earn money and gain wealth, but they hate the Western culture. Right. Um, they hate anyone 
who does not hold the same ideological belief as themselves. So in my university, so when Osama bin Laden was killed, uh, there were girls who were who would wear more westernized, like who wouldn't wear the, who would wear like jeans and you know dresses like who would be westernized, uh, and they called him a martyr because they think if you're supporting. Um, so even if you're Westernized, and if you're, if, you're, uh, if you're a Westernized Muslim, and if you are supporting, if you're sympathizing Osama bin Laden, then that compensates some of the Western life that you're, le- you're leading. Uh, okay, it's meant like mental gymnastics, isn't it? It's it's a mental dis- yes, yes. So you would see in the UK that you would see people who have certain support for the Islamic State. They they eat pork, they would drink, they would go to the nightclubs, and then on Friday night Friday. Um, on the next day, they would go to the go to the mosque and they would pray yeah. very vigorously because they think all the sin is forgiven once okay, you pray. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. once you go to Hajj, like do as much sin as you you can commit as much sin as you want as long as you go to the Hajj to Mecca and do a pilgrim, then all your previous history is erased yeah. and you start. Um, yeah, that's the gymnastic. I had yeah, a yes. I had a, a Jewish friend like that who's because I'm from a Jewish background and what, what yes. a lot of my friends growing up were Jewish but one guy in particular had a very strong religious uh, family and he used to do the thing you know Friday nights uh, you have to turn off all electricity and phones and stuff and then mm. sat until the next sun rise yes. or whatever uh, but he used to smoke and do drugs and drink and all of those things but just then Friday night turn his phone off. Mm. And it was like, oh, it's okay. I did the phone thing. I yes. turned my phone off. <laughs> so it's just crazy, the cognitive yes. bias and this, this yes. uh, almost obsessive compulsive disorder. It, that's what religion seems to be. It's interesting. You have this common, this common behavior across all religion. What happened next? You left university and... So when I would be in the UK, so I would have a lot of... Uh, my mom would be very psychologically, very abusive over phone. Mm. And then right before I would have the, the, the Christmas break or the, the, the spring break, um, they would be very nice asking me to return to the country because they really miss me. And they would they sound like they would treat me fairly. And every time I went back, um, it, they became more and more... Um, I mean, as soon as they would find me in my own place without... Um, not in a public place or in my own place at night, they would become very aggressive. So as long as I can't ask for help, it would start with them starting a conversation and then escalating it to the point that they would justify uh, assaulting me at that time i gave a police statement against my uncle who assaulted his son in london um and no one ever did that in my entire family like no one had ever gone to the police and said that actually a a man is responsible for assault and that was the final straw it was like that that was the beginning when my parents increasingly started to isolate me from my cousins yeah. And they would just try to find a corner where they could corner me and just intimidate me. So that's when things got wrong. So, so the, the situation with my uncles was that so I was staying with my aunt, who was separated from his husband, my uncle. Yeah. But my uncle v- visited the pro- property and assaulted his son in front of me. Why? And uh, because he wouldn't do his homework. The man feels feels uh, like a victim and then he would be very violent to actually justify, this is why I have, I've beaten you up. And he was like, actually, I brought you to this world. I'm feeding you. I'm looking after you. Why aren't you doing your homework? And then he starts beating them. But the, what he did was he took the left leg of his son and then just bent it the other way. He was eight years old. And I saw it. I like, you need to stop doing that to your son. 
But the next day, he called the police on his wife. And when the police came, and the police asked me questions about the previous night, because my aunt told them actually it was him who was this, who assaulted his son. I was present. Police asked me what happened, and I just told them this is what happened. Like the yeah. son was assaulted in front of me, and he was he was wasn't allowed to visit the property. But my parents found out that I've told the police, and since then it was like I was told that I'm to westernize. Um, I don't know how to respect the elders in the family, but it was it was an escalation. And then in 2014, I was assaulted by my dad. Uh, um, I'm so sorry to hear that. I'm 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 much stronger now. I'm not crying. Okay. That's the best part because all the other time I'm I'm very sad. Okay. Um, so then I contacted the women's organization in Bangladesh. So my dad knows that they he got a chase from that women's rights organization, and he felt very humiliated because he is a well known personality in the country. He's well respected, and now there is this public. Yeah. Um, good. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, to some extent, it's good, but it does hurt. Because um, he also looked after me. Um, and Do you still it's, love it's your parents? Sad. I'm not going to answer that. No, I'm not going to answer that. Hmm. Uh, I don't. I don't think they deserve to know. Um, so I contacted the victim support, and then they took me through this process of actually you shouldn't go back. Um, um, better apply for an asylum, and we will do life from here. And then that's the starting point of the overall journey but then i never expected i felt like um actually if i get educated and if i get a job yeah um my parents would my family would respect me but then halfway into my masters i'm told that actually if you get a job and if you get a higher salary you become a prostitute my uncle told me that um it's only girls who do not have a character who are who are not faithful to their to their husband only they get a high 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 a high salary job why should you go for oh my god why should you be uh have the ambition because yeah. you should get married because now that you have a master's degree we can we can marry you off to a nicer man oh. and you just can't i mean if you're a woman I, you can't you can't I, I i couldn't tolerate this 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 humiliation that these people don't see anything in me they saw me like a baby making machine and that they could just sell at a higher price if i had certain things um yeah to define me, for example, I, I had a master's degree because it's like, um, yeah, people do want to get married to hire. There is a there is a caste system that one talks about. Yeah. Did you feel a bit like property? Yes. Yeah. My mom told me, oh, you don't have, you are 26 and you still don't have an owner. Oh. And I wish I could record that because you could, I mean, this wasn't a joke. This was like a serious thing that she does believe that you, because you're a man, you need an owner, you need a guardian, and you just can't be on your own without a man. Yeah. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts, and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist 
Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. You, you said you were a, a bit of a rebel growing up. Did the years at Warwick University make you even more, like make your past seem even more uh, unappealing? Or, or was it, or were you just going to be like that anyway? Mm, not really. I mean, I, 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 so when I, when I came to the UK, you were a first year graduate, post-grad student. You don't know anyone. You try to make friends. People would talk about um, traveling, going snorkeling, you know, having, having a partner, doing all these things. They know driving. And I couldn't contribute to that conversation because I've never done any of these things. I didn't even know what snorkeling is. Yeah. When I was told, oh, I went for snorkeling and they would share all these pictures on social media. Was there any sense of your parents wanting you to have a good time and to enjoy yourself? And or, or was, Because if it's all just property, then there's never going to be... They, they were not like that. They, they would hate me going and meeting these people. They just expected me, I would do the classes, I would be back to my campus, to my room and the library and these three places. And they would call me every time to see actually if I've been there. And my mom and dad, they hated Facebook. At that time, I had a Facebook account. Um, they didn't like technology because it was more of a Western invention. The minimum they could use is much better. Um, so they created fake accounts to um, see what I'm up to. Fucking hell. And then my, and then my mom, um, again, then she later on had her own account. She tried to add me and then like she would look for my friends' accounts and then see what pictures if they could find me in any pictures. So if that was a level, like they would never have, they never had a Facebook account that are not technologically very apt to use, use beyond, beyond Facebook. But then by the time I came to the UK, they learned how to uh, have a social presence so they could keep an eye on me. And they do this to this day. But now they found people, the delegate that's talking to other people, the incidents I had last year was that my, I saw my mom uh, she she doesn't have she came from the Bangladesh to the UK to find me. She doesn't have a UK driving license, um, so you need a person to transport her to my house from where she came. So she definitely had help wow. to from find who? my property. I, it should be from her own community, and also she, there is a language barrier because they know they speak broken English. And they only talk in Bengali. So they can't do all these things without community help. Right. So that is where my fear is that actually uh, people, people, my family would go to get help would be people who believe in the blasphemy law. And what does the blasphemy law entail? So basically it means that if you left under the Sharia law, if you have left Islam, um, yeah. you should get a couple of chances to recount what you've said. And if you don't do that, you should be stoned to death. So that's what my... Um, understanding is and my dad uh, because he works at the government he he was very much desperate to get me to a Bangladeshi embassy where I think I wouldn't have been safe and then um, he wanted me to land on the Bangladeshi airport and I knew that the moment I do that he would get me arrested it seems like they're not trying to get you back as much as to punish you how far do you think they would go I don't know I don't know the, the, I have no idea Andrew the only thing that is really traumatizing is they just don't stop I mean they tried to um, contact me directly and, and I've never responded. And now, now the delegate, then they delegated my cousins to contact me mm. and they made it look like actually now my cousins have all the freedom that I really asked for because they want to make it very appealing to get back for me to contact them. And I was 
warned by the Met Police in 2016 that actually you will have you'll be contacted by your cousins. How did they know? Update. I think they deal with a lot of owner uh, violence cases, so they were aware. And also in 2006, this uh, there was a girl named Banaz who was murdered by her cousin and her dad. Yeah. Um, in the UK, so I think they have that context. But it was quite, quite it was very, very profitable because in 2016 they gave me a call um, and told me, "Oh, actually, you're going to get uh, your cousins will try to contact you if your um, workplace and the places you go for for socializing is on the website. Your parents will find out from your social media accounts and they will try to contact them as well." So in 2015, when I started out as doing some work as an ex-Muslim, they were, I was the only Bangladeshi um, ex-Muslim on, on the ground doing work. And by the end of 2016, you have more and more new people hmm. pretending to be ex-Muslims, trying to get in touch with you, finding out where you live. And what the most creepy part was that actually when I would leave an event, they would stand at the ex- exit door just to see where I'm going. I became a bit more careful i was less less on the ground and more online but exactly six or seven months down the line my father came to the uk he contacted these people i was i was working with and asked me to come and get some bags he've got for me and he made them email me saying i'm in the uk come and see me and i never responded to them because the that that police advice was I was already told that this is going to happen. It's like, actually, your, your parents will contact your friends. And after that, there were, again, a number of um, stalking incidents where it's only Bang- Bengali-speaking men who would follow me with a massive zoomable camera, and it happens to this day. Wow. I'm trying to think, like, what do your parents want? What do they want? I think they want control. I mean, they, had, they were very proud to control the daughters in their family and then the entire reputation of the family depended on them and they don't have that so I used to be a teacher uh, and my mom used to take away all my salary I wanted to go out make friends which wasn't I wasn't allowed I wasn't allowed to go to a shop and eat any food when I earned my own salary and I brought some kebab with that money my mom she told me oh actually you are a prostitute you are a it's called a besha and then he she told my dad and my dad got this this metal scale and he bit me so badly andrew and at that that what that day i was like you know i i taught for six hours i had my own study and you can't do this to me and then he got the uncles from other family to get them and i just couldn't i i it was so horrible andrew the entire experience and it kept happening all the time and they took my laptop away. Um, I wouldn't be allowed anywhere outside. And they they broke the locks in my door because unmarried women shouldn't be in 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 a, shouldn't have that, that shouldn't have their own space. And I wasn't allowed to wear perfumes. I didn't have any freedom. I mean, I was I I tried so much to give everything to my parents. Like, actually, you have to be very very good with your education. Even if you even if you go for a tuition, I wasn't allowed to teach. So I was beaten. I was I begged for six months, like, please, dad, give let me let me teach, let me earn the money. I'll, I'll you can have my money, but let me get that get that opportunity. And when I had that, it just went, it just became worse and worse. And that was the whole thing that they enjoyed that someone would do all these things, then they could still control. Yeah. 
And I just could, I mean, there's a difference between when you were assaulted when you were 16 and now you're 24 and you have the same situation. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, that you, was it. Never mind. I'm much better now. Yeah. You've, you've been through something really horrific, Ray. Um, it's really, yeah. really sad. Sorry. And I guess we can take some positive from the fact that, you know, you're now yeah. in, in this new life. And I mean, would you say you're much happier now? Um, happier, stronger. I used to be very um, grateful to my parents that actually my mom would tell me, oh, we are giving you a house. Uh, you're not homeless. Uh, you're eating food. You should mm. be grateful. And I was always very grateful, particularly to, also, to my mom and also my dad, because I mean, he was very controlling. He was a control freak, but he would pay my tuition and I wouldn't be able to get this far without my dad, you know, doing all these things. Yeah. And I just—it's so hard balancing that this person looks after you. You know, they—they they bring you to your life, and they're the same people who believe that you—you you dishonored them. Yeah. You should be killed, and it is so hard to. Uh, it's just too hard to balance. Yeah. I mean, I tried so much, and I'm, sorry. Um, no, don't be sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Please don't be sorry. It's very difficult. Um, it's very difficult. But um, it wasn't an easy decision uh, to be completely on my own. But then I, yeah. I was very, I was very, very suicidal. And my dad knew that I am suicidal. I dishonored him, and he told me in January when I went to the UK, just a second, went back to Bangladesh. Oh, just, just that it's not even two months, two days. I, I was back, and he told me that actually. If you eat, if you drink all these medicines, you're going to die. And he was, I knew that this was, he was very, very ashamed of what I became. And he couldn't take it that I went to the police and I gave a statement against my uncle. So they told me, if you eat all of them and you're going to die. And it was so horrible. It was so painful to... They wanted you to kill yourself. Yeah. So, yeah, so Fucking hell. They were there in the, in, the, in the dining room. And when I, you know, I didn't give in to that. And it was just in April that yeah. this all began. And then, 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 then he attacked me. I received a lot of threats from Islamists. They, I had people telling me, you should kill yourself. I had people writing me on Twitter, oh, you should kill yourself. Yeah. And it, they never affect me, but then if it's your own family, say you should die, uh, or you know they indicate that you know you shouldn't shouldn't the fact that I'm, I was alive was eating them. I was um, they couldn't tolerate that, and that is a really hurtful thing to kind of take. Yeah. But I was doing all these things for themselves and for them. Yeah. Um, so it was difficult. It was very difficult. Uh, but I'm glad I had support that I had. I had some people looking after me and they were checking in on me. Yeah. Uh, my university was checking on me on every week to see I was doing well. So it was good. It was good. Yeah. You have a job, a good job. You have friends. You've got a nice place now. And I mean, your English is spectacular, by the way. <laughs> it's like, it seems like a first language to me. <laughs> uh, I feel bad that I've made you do this podcast and that you're uh, so sad now. Um, so right, it's better, oh, better than the previous time, but yeah, uh, I'm gonna get some proper counselling because uh, every time I have to give us because I have to give a statement to the police all the yeah. the whole time, but it gets even more horrible to give a proper statement because it really impacts emotionally. And then when I'm because I don't want to waste you don't want to waste police time. You want to give give them 
proper straight facts that they can do their work. And then when you're emotionally very vulnerable and weak, and I don't want to come across as vulnerable, because every time I was vulnerable, people take advantage of you. But you seem incredibly strong to me. You don't, I mean, we're, we're all vulnerable, <laughs> so, but you're very, you're strong, you're on Twitter, and you're uh, constantly campaigning against these people. You're angry, rightly angry. And I think that's a good, positive thing. Thank you. Yeah, I hope things could have turned out better. My family was my whole world for 24 years. And when you leave, you know, lose that, I think that can be, that's a life-changing thing. And I wasn't prepared for the trauma yeah. and for the flashback. And it was like, when, once the dust settles, um, it really hurts you. So when I was homeless, you know, when I was unemployed, I didn't have a place to leave. I didn't have time to feel bad because I was so afraid that I'm going to die outside. I used to spend my days at Starbucks cafe. I wasn't sad. I wasn't depressed because okay, I need to get things, this thing done. I just have to, you know, hold on to some courage. I just have to wait and that's fine. And then it was when I, you know, started rebuilding my life. I had a, I got a refuge. I was in a homeless refuge. I, for the first time I had my own bed, I could sleep. It's then when it starts hurting you because I mean, the memories keeps coming back because you now have more space to to think and i was i wasn't ready for that 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 post-traumatic experience and, and what about now i mean so you have close friends do you have a romantic partner have you been able to clear your head to get into that or never no i tried um so i do have one or two friends but i can't trust every so this is what this is what happened with when i was doing activism was that uh, more and more people when you were a public public individual and more and more people will try and befriend you um that i was i'm very open to talking to people yeah. but there was the safety aspect because i because i had a i had a warning from the police saying actually you're gonna have stalkers and people from bangladesh trying to get under yeah. find out more about your personal life i became more careful and then very unfortunately after the ex-muslim because campaign which i i helped initiate because the idea came from me it was hijacked by the far right and yeah. and then there were people from the far left. So when you are an ex-Muslim uh, and you don't and don't participate in polar conversation, um, you you become a target. And it became difficult for me to make friends yeah. because oh, I I was invited to um, give a talk to this very not uh, this very nice lady approached me to give a talk, and then later on I discovered oh, actually she has linked to the far right, and then uh. the similar thing. Oh, I was approached with this really nice person who is also an ex-Muslim. Um, who's an activist, Twitter activist. Oh, actually, this person is a Hamas sympathizer. So who are you going to trust? Oh, wow. So I couldn't build a very good friend network, one or two people. But then when I joined the civil service, I met one or two friends. So I have a very small community of people mm. that you know I can call friends. But, I think yes. uh, it's another reason that you and I talk to each other on Twitter and stuff. I mm -hmm. think we have quite centrist views. And I think there are a lot of centrist people. It's just that we tend to be the quietest, you know? Uh, yes the left and right the, i think they're the minority but they they're so loud i agree i think they get amplified by the media i mean you see you see someone like i don't want to tell her name this this girl from novara media who's a communist uh, uh, uh and a harmless sympathizer a carbon supporter an yeah. absolute clown and she would get a good platform compared to someone like you like the woman on the, me, on like, the canary the canary yes. newspaper yes i can't remember her yes. name she's horrible <laughs> yes yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah um she talks about the the girl with the short short hair Might this girl this woman yes. they're just everyone on the left and right even those that are listening to this podcast your story 
contradicts their views of the world. It contradicts the left-wing view that everyone is wonderful all the time. And it also contradicts the right-wing view, like all Muslims are terrible or whatever. You know, you're you're a nice, normal person with a difficult, complex story. Yeah, right? that's the problem with the, with, with the far left and the far right. They think everything is black and white. Yeah. So they see all... Uh, people from the Muslim people as victims, they need help, they need to be rescued. Uh, and then when they saw someone like me being, you know, very straight talking, actually, you don't need to help me, I can help myself. Just, you know, help help, help me deal with actually real life problems. Uh, they, they don't like that. So I'm under attack from both the far left and the far right. And I was absolutely stupid because I didn't know what the far right is until 2015 or 2016 when I became more politically conscious. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know what the far left was. So it was only a, like like the last five years that I now I know what it means. But you have this girl, myself, in 2015 and early 2016, who is very new in activism, doesn't know all, what all these things are. And then by the time she figures them out, now she's a target by both groups. And the common denominator is when you don't participate in anti-Semitism, you become a target. I don't know what the problem with the UK is, but this is exactly what happens, is that actually I denounce the far-right neo-Nazi you know, anti-Semitism, and I also criticize ex-Muslims who are Hamas sympathizers. Yeah. Um, these people, they, they pick up people who are critics of Islamism and when, who, who have a Jewish link, have a Jewish heritage. Maybe one, par- one parent was Jewish, maybe their partner is Jewish, yeah. and they target them. And then they just have this big army, Twitter army, to, to, to attack them. But now I've realized that actually your real fam- family is someone it's not necessarily the family you're born into, but the people who accept you and the people you meet along the way who support you. I'm, of course, proud to have become part of Ray's inner circle. I can confirm she's a really nice and helpful person, and that's not just fluff for the podcast. I really do mean that. I found her experience with her family hard to listen to, as I'm sure it was for you all as well. It puts into perspective the silly arguments we have with our own families, the time we hated a parent for not attending a ballet session or whatever it might be. It's, of course, all relative, but it makes you think. Her story is suffering personified, and it's a miracle she's come out of it as such an eloquent and well-rounded person I'm proud to call my friend. Do subscribe to make sure you don't miss next week's podcast with Helen Pluckrose, an anti-woke scholar who made a bunch of fake social grievance studies to see if she could get them published. These included the theory that dogs engage in rape culture, that men can cure their transphobia by inserting dildos up their back passages, and that Mein Kampf be translated with feminist language. Spoiler alert, they were indeed published. So if you want to hear from her, subscribe by clicking that little plus button and leaving a little review if you want. And I'll see you next week. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. 
Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.